Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. I'm a young black man doing all that I can to stand. Oh, but when I look around and I see what's being done to my kind every day, I'm being hunted as prey. My people don't want no trouble. We've had an ocean go. I just want to live, God protect me, I just want to live, I just want to live. Well, good morning, Antioch, and uh, welcome to Dear White People, a special edition of our digital liturgy. This is the first time that we've done a live stream during the uh, COVID lockdown. And the reason we're doing this today is so that as a community, we could have a real-time, raw, unedited conversation about what's happening in our world. So as you know, over the past couple of weeks, um, on top of still dealing with the ongoing coronavirus fallout, our country has found itself in a state of crisis around race and justice, inequality uh, in the wake of the killings of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and most recently George Floyd. uh, Literally hundreds of thousands of Americans have taken to the streets to protest about uh, systemic racism and police violence. And even just yesterday here in Bend, well over a thousand people uh, marched along the river from Farewell Bend Park through the Old Mill into downtown to walk for justice. So um, the world is on fire, and as the body of Christ, sometimes it's hard to know what our place is in this whole thing. And so this morning, um, rather than talking around some of these issues, we're going to tackle them head on. We're going to be talking about some pretty hard topics and some pretty touchy subjects, and I can pretty much guarantee that at some point, you're going to feel very uncomfortable um, this morning. Uh, you're probably going to experience anxiety in one of three ways. Either uh, your heart's going to start racing, or your mind's going to start spinning, or your gut is going to start tightening up. Um, If that happens, I want you to pause and to pay attention. I want you to ask, what is it that's triggering that anxiety in your heart or in your head or in your body? and See if you can name that thing and process it a little bit. Uh, I also want to invite you to engage in this experience by submitting um, whatever questions you may have. Uh, There's a chat feature in Zoom, and you can submit your questions uh, to all the panelists. And um, the idea is that today we're beginning a conversation. We're going to have a follow-up session uh, in a couple days on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Today's going to be a little bit more... um, of of you listening and Tuesday will be a little bit more of an opportunity to interact. So please take advantage of the chat feature and post your most honest, curious, 
uh, pressing questions, and they'll help shape the next uh, part of the conversation on Tuesday. So um, here's what this morning is going to look like. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to open in prayer. And then uh, I've invited my friend Jer Swigart, who's the uh, co-founding director of a Christian peacemaking training organization called the Global Immersion Project. And Jer's going to join me in a conversation about what it looks like to follow Jesus in a moment like this. Um, we're going to talk for a while, and then we'll have a closing song. So Antioch, I am so proud of you guys. And I'm so thankful that you have chosen to join me today in, <clears throat> in pursuing our dream of becoming a courageous congregation that rather than being controlled by fear is compelled by the love of Christ. And we're going to be asking what it is that Jesus might want to do in us and form in us and even do through us in the midst of this crisis we find ourselves in. So we're going to open in prayer. I'm going to invite Gretchen Radomski to lead us in a prayer of the people as we turn our attention towards the presence of Jesus and the world that he loves. Um, let's pray. Holy, holy, holy God, in calling forth creation from the void, revealing yourself in human flesh, and pouring forth your wisdom to guide us, you manifest your concern for your whole universe. You invite us as your people to gather the world's needs into our hearts and bring them before you. Father, you are the God of justice. We pray for your justice to rain down on our nation for Ahmad Arbery's life, for Brianna Taylor's life, for George Floyd's life, and for the countless black lives that have been taken through our nation's history for the sake of power and privilege. Defend those who are oppressed, give relief and restoration to those who have lived under racist systems every day of their lives. Strike down those who would oppress. Open our eyes so we see the Imago Dei in those around us. Make your church an instrument of your peace. Jesus, you are our shepherd and love incarnate. We pray for your love to rain down on us as we wrestle with our own complicity and complacency to racial injustice in this nation and in our hearts. When we want to run away, give us what we need to stay. When we are lost or hiding from you, come and find us. Open our ears so we hear your voice. Make your church a vessel to carry your love. Holy Spirit, you are the steady and gentle voice that both confronts and convicts our hearts. We pray for your wisdom to rain down on us as we seek to do the next right thing in the midst of so much uncertainty. Comfort the grieving mothers and daughters, sisters and brothers, fathers and sons of those who have been brutalized. Strengthen and encourage those who are weary of this fight, but who press on nonetheless. Open our hearts so that we can lay down our own privilege. Make your church an incense, fragrant with your grace. Holy, holy, holy God, fill us with strength and courage with discernment and compassion 
that we may be your instruments of justice and love in this world, that it may be on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Gretchen. Um, let me start us off by sharing a couple of reasons that we're having this conversation today. Um, first, for those who are part of Antioch, you know that the vision God has given us is the reconciliation of all things. This is our understanding of the gospel of Jesus, that God made the world and called it good, and then the world was ripped apart by sin and by evil. But now through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, God's on a mission to make all things new again, including us. And so reconciliation, to borrow a phrase from the Global Immersion Project, is about the holistic repair of severed relationships. And I would say that no matter who you are or how you interpret the events of the past couple of weeks, no one in our country would say that race relations are going well at the moment, right? This is one of the most polarizing, controversial, divisive topics in the world. But if Jesus is on a mission to make all things new, to reconcile all things to himself, then that includes race relations within the United States and all the relationships that have been severed um, by sin. So for Antioch, this is a conversation about racial justice, and it's very much in line with the vision that God's given us. And if you've been around for any length of time, it's not the first time that we've talked about it, but we're going to take another step forward um, this morning. There's a second thing I want to say, and that is here's why we're framing the conversation the way we are today. We're not just going to be talking about race in general, but we're going to be talking specifically about whiteness. Um, I've entitled today's liturgy, Dear White People. Uh, as you probably know, I am a straight, white, conservative, evangelical, Christian male pastor. Uh, I don't particularly love all of those descriptors. I'd like to think I'm cooler than that, but it's the truth. And uh, I live in Bend, Oregon. It's a city that's 92% white. Uh, I pastor a church that's overwhelmingly white. Our entire staff is white. Uh, Antioch, whether we like it or not, um, even though we have some wonderful people of color in our congregation, uh, we are a white church in a white city in a white state. And if you uh, think our people of color will be offended by that observation, it's not like they haven't already noticed. Right? <laughs> so sometimes white people like us in a white church, in a white city, in a white state, have a hard time trying to wrap our minds around conversations related to uh, racial injustice and inequity. And even those of us that have read and watched documentaries and listened to podcasts and had long, hard conversations uh, with friends and tried to wrap our minds around uh, the lived experience and the perspective that our brothers and sisters of color have, the truth is it, we just don't get it. Um, and specifically, as those in Central Oregon, the fact that we lack proximity to so few people of color, specifically African Americans, it makes it really easy for us to say, yeah, I know that racism is a big deal in our nation's history and in other places around the world, but why are we talking about this in Bend, Oregon? What does this have to do with me? And so that's the first reason. Today we're not talking about what it means uh, to be an African-American or to be a person of color. We're talking about whiteness, which I know is a conversation that is going to be immediately 
applicable to roughly 92% of us. But there's an even bigger reason that we're talking about whiteness today. Um, the phrase, the reconciliation of all things, comes from Colossians chapter 1, as you know, which is a passage that has served our church as a theological uh, grounding. It's a passage that's all about Jesus. It's Paul um, extolling the beauty and uh, the glory of Christ and specifically laying out this vision for who Jesus is and why through the shedding of his blood on the cross, he's unleashed uh, the peace of God into the world. And so central to our understanding of the gospel is that it's not just about making the world a better place. There's lots of people that are trying to do that, and that's great. But as followers of Jesus, our gospel is about the glory of God being displayed to all of creation in the exaltation of his son, Jesus. And the word that Paul uses to describe this is supremacy. In the new world that God is making, Jesus sits on the throne, and he reigns supreme over all creation. Listen to Colossians 1, 17 and 18. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The vision that the Bible gives us is that the kingdom of God that's already here and that is still coming is centered around the supreme reign of Christ. Supreme reign of Christ. And so what this means is that any person or power on earth that would challenge the supremacy of Jesus, and this is very strong biblical language, is anti-Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the Antichrist from left behind. I'm talking about how First John uses the phrase that every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus as the Christ is not from God and is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so it's my growing conviction that if the gospel is about the supremacy of Christ, then white supremacy is a false gospel. It is anti-Christ. Um, now, I'd be pretty surprised if there's anybody that's on our call today who would openly identify as a white supremacist. Um, but here's what I'm learning. When we talk about white supremacy, we aren't just talking about the KKK or skinheads or white nationalists. We're talking about historically based, institutionally perpetuated system of exploitation and oppression of people of color for the purpose of maintaining systems of white wealth, power, and privilege. In other words, the United States, in the United States, white supremacy isn't just a radical ideology. It's actually a historical fact. Now, if you don't believe me, then answer this. Which question do you, or which race do you think has had supremacy in the history of the United States? Which race do you think occupies the supreme place in our social order? I think you'd have a pretty hard time arguing that any other race or that no particular race has reigned supreme here. Now, again, I'm not saying this is the way it should be. I'm saying that the way, this is the way it is. 
We're not just talking about a demographic majority. We're talking about a deep and pervasive set of systems that treat whiteness, specifically male whiteness, as the supreme value. Going all the way back to the European genocide of Native Americans, to the buying and selling of African slaves, our country was built upon the foundation of white supremacy. And as much as we'd like to think that's in the past, the truth is it's still all around us and we're just so accustomed to it, can't even see it. So just let me be personal for a moment. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving home uh, from the office and as I came into my neighborhood, there was an African-American kid, maybe 14 or 15, walking in the middle of the street and he had his headphones on and he was um, making a lot of noise. I don't know if he was singing along to his music or something like that. And it's already uh, in Bend, Oregon, kind of noteworthy to see a person of color walking down the street. But for him to be acting in a way that I kind of saw as drawing attention to himself, as I'm sitting there alone in my truck, underneath my breath, I say, bro, know your place. Where did that come from? Um, I'd like to think that that was a statement of genuine concern on my part. Like, I don't want this guy to get flipped off or harassed by anybody in my neighborhood. Um, but even if that's the case, do you still, do you see how I subconsciously have this script for how life is supposed to go in my town? And if there's a black kid, that's all right, but he better have his head down and not drawing attention to himself. Like, how messed up is that? Or another example, how often do we as white people clarify that the person we're talking about is white, right? Like I would rarely mention to you that we have new white neighbors that moved in next door, right? Or that my kids made a new white friend at school. Uh, I think the only times we would really point out somebody's whiteness is if we're talking about like a rapper or a wide receiver or something like that, right? <laughs> Um, we refer to people as Asian-American, as African-American, as Mexican-American, and I'm American. Mm -hmm. So today, like I said, we're not just talking about race and racism. We're talking about whiteness. Now, the truth is I uh, seriously considered inviting one of my African-American pastor friends to come and speak to us today. And you know that at Antioch, 90% uh, of the guest speakers we bring in are either people of color or, or women. Um, and we are committed to continually uh, centering voices of color every chance we get. But for today, it felt really clear to me that this was not the time to ask my black friends for anything. This was not the time to put the burden of responsibility for educating, engaging my congregation on their shoulders. And so uh, I've invited my friend Jer Swigart to be with us today. And uh, it's not in spite of the fact that he's another white guy, but it is because he is another white guy who is working really hard to learn how to see and understand whiteness. And so I'll close with this. David Foster Wallace once told a parable, and it goes like this. There's two young fish swimming along. And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? 
The point is that the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. And I think that for many of us, a conversation about race and justice and reconciliation in Central Oregon makes us ask, what the heck is whiteness? Mm. And so, Jared, thanks so much for joining me today. You've been uh, busy this week helping organize faith leaders across Central Oregon in response to what's happening in our world. Uh, also, you've been hosting a series of conversations about whiteness for the past several weeks. And uh, Jared, I've invited you here because of all the white people I know, you're one of the people who spent most time outside the fish tank. So help us see what we're not seeing. Right on, man. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Pete, wow, what a, what a unique moment for us to, to be having this conversation. And I just want to, like you did at the very beginning, I want to I acknowledge that this moment and even this preach, teach, whatever it is that we're calling this, is in honor of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and David McAtee and William DeBose and Jamel Floyd, who on Thursday was pepper sprayed to death in his low security prison cell by law enforcement. These are just a, a few of the souls that make up the constellation of black lives that's been prematurely extinguished by whiteness, uh, even in the last three months. But it's also in honor of our brother Deshaun Adderley, a 14-year-old Summit High School student who was terrorized by his white classmates to the point at which suicide felt like his only option uh, of freedom uh, from, from the insidious sounds uh, and trauma of whiteness. And so we hold them and we hold the space for them um, in, this, in this time. I wanna acknowledge, uh, acknowledge my love for this city uh, and all who call Bend home. I wanna acknowledge my affection for this church. Uh, Antioch, I wanna acknowledge your courage, Pete, in being the kind of white leader who's saying we will remain silent on this no longer. I want to acknowledge that I'm in process, uh, that I am humbled by what is happening, that I am coming in, in a, a spirit of repentance uh, and lament. I also want to acknowledge that I'm an Enneagram 8 who is angry right now and uh, carrying a, a level of anguish. And there's a chance that I might watch this five years from now and be like, I wonder why I said it that way. Uh, and so know that everything that is being said is being said in, in, uh, in, in the the vein of love because there's a problem to fix uh, and it's too late and we've got a role to play and it's time we get off our couches and off social media and into the actual spaces where our transformation can occur as will the liberation of our black and brown sisters and brothers. Um, I want to acknowledge that I'm listening and I'm learning from my sisters and brothers of color and that I'm allowing myself to be changed by what I hear uh, and that I'm choosing to live love and lead differently uh, as a result. And I also want to acknowledge that many of you are viewing this from places all over the country and world, from Edmonton, Canada, to, um, to Minneapolis, to the West Bank and Palestine. Uh, you're listening in and, uh, and we see you and we're grateful. We're honored that you'd actually take some time to be with us here uh, this morning. My name, as Pete said, is Jer Swigert. I'm the co-founder of the Global Immersion Project and I've lived in Bend uh, for the last five years. I, I grew up in, uh, in the mostly white dairy farm country of the Midwest. And uh, while my learning curve on race and racism and whiteness has really accelerated in the last 15 years, I give credit to five people in my upbringing uh, for helping to shape, at least put me on the path that I'm on right now, two of which are my parents, Lori and Roger Swigert, and then my three childhood friends, Tommy Hammes, Maria Wilson, and Ebony Brooks. 
Um, it was my parents and their relationship with the Williams family in the cotton fields in Mississippi, uh, Big Ma and Shug being former sharecroppers who helped me begin to understand the realities of child slavery and as well as the realities of privilege that are associated with being uh, white in America. Um, it was because of Tommy and Maria and Ebony uh, and it's because they crossed a threshold into my life that I've learned how to cross, or cross thresholds in, into the lives of other folk. And so I, I, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for those five people and friends just like them. Um, and I feel like today I'm more in touch with my humanity because of you. Uh, I, I recognize that I'm experiencing more of, a, more of a sense of liberation because of you, and therefore um, it's because of you that I'm living my life literally for the sake of a liberation for others. And so I know some of you are listening in, so, um, so thank you for, um, for walking with me. I want to acknowledge, um, Antioch, that while you've had many conversations about justice and racism and white privilege, this conversation, like Pete just said, will feel different uh, than than any that Antioch has ever hosted. Now, I'm really honored by, uh, that, that I get to be a part of this moment, but I'm also pointing to the article that Pete wrote about why Bend is so white, about the, um, the, the video that Kit put out about a history of Oregon and its whiteness in the space. Um, I, I love the set of resources that are listed under the link for this particular conversation. You have had lots of conversations that have felt like risky conversations. Um, I, I want to acknowledge, though, that part of the reason that I believe why we are here in this particular moment is because white pastors have prioritized your emotional stability and general sense of comfort um, over and above the lives of black and brown sisters in this country. Our commitment to your comfort has been the incubator for a pathogen that is far more deadly than COVID-19. It's called whiteness. And my research and work have revealed three primary factors that have caused white pastors like Pete and I to shy away from prioritizing conversations about racism and whiteness. Here they are, ignorance. We have not done the work to understand the fact that our country was not built on Christian ideals, but rather on the value system of empire, most notably racism, greed, and violence. And I lament and repent of the ways in which I have baptized racism, greed, and violence as Christian virtues and have perpetuated them for my own benefit. Second, fear. We have worked tirelessly to manufacture the image of socially aware, well-read, well-liked, with relatively decent hair, leaders <laughs> who have not been willing to compromise our commitment to image management in order to become the kinds of people who are able to join in the remaking of the world. Third, economics. We have trained you to understand that discomfort means that something wrong or bad is happening. We, we, you have told us that if we make you too uncomfortable, that rather than leaning into the discomfort and discovering your transformation, you will leave and you'll take your dollars with you. So ignorance, fear, and economics are the three primary reasons why we have willfully decided not to stir the hornet's nest in order to actually be a part of change in our world. And for that, we're sorry. We, re we repent for the ways in which we've allowed the beasts of ignorance and fear and economics to, to inform the way that we've chosen to guide you. We have not served you well. 
that we have we, that we have chose to to be corralled by these three demons is a, is sinful. It's a manifestation of our whiteness, and I publicly confess it to you today. Um, Anyak, you have a reputation of being a white conservative evangelical church that talks a bit about justice. And again, as Pete said, this is going to get uncomfortable. I'm humbled and repentant and angry and in anguish and a bit hopeful. That's part of why this is going to get uncomfortable. But the subject matter as well is why this will stir some discomfort for us. Please know that your transformation will not be found in retreating from the discomfort but that it will be found only on the other side of it, which means that the spirit of the resurrected one is more than willing to accompany you through the discomfort to transformation. But please know this, our transformation is not the point. Liberation is the point. Restoration is the point. We are transformed in order to be a part of the liberating, restorative revolution that we've been saved into. And it's only as we transform and find ourselves in the work of liberation that we too find ourselves liberated. So don't be duped that your transformation is the end. It is not. It is a means to a much better end. So when this gets uncomfortable in the next 45 minutes or however long this takes, do not retreat. Make a better decision. Lean in because lives are literally at stake. And so here are three questions to kind of help us uh, navigate the, the discomfort. Number one, what did I learn that I did not know before? What did I learn that I did not know before? And all y'all sitting in your living rooms, please grab a piece of paper or on your device, thumb these out and have them in front of you the entire time. What did I learn that I did not know before? Where did I feel exposed? Now, feeling exposed is not designed to be a, a moment of shaming. Where I feel exposed is probably the, the very space where the spirit needs to do some transformative work in me. Number three, what am I going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And, and don't wait for anybody to tell you what to do about it. If you feel moved, if you feel exposed, if there's something that you're learning, if the spirit is inspiring a thing in you, Ask the spirit, what am I going to do? What should I do about it? What are you inviting me to do? Uh, because the, the, the world's not going to change because we get smarter and more moral. The world's going to change because we actually live responsive to what the spirit is inviting us uh, to do. Are you with me so far? I'm with you. Okay, we good? With you. All right, here we go. I got to remember <laughs> to smile from time to time. We're having this conversation because on May 25th, uh, the neck of another black man was stretched by whiteness, this time in the streets of Minneapolis. We're having this conversation because it was another public lynching enacted by law enforcement caught on camera and broadcast around the world. We're having this conversation because protests are flooding the streets and whiteness is co-opting the protest movement and duping us into believing things that are not true about what's going on. We're having this, this conversation because so many of us are asking such important questions right now. Questions like, what does this have to do with me? Why don't I understand this? Why won't this just end? What is mine to do? Really important questions. But we're also having this conversation because for too long, as Pete alluded to, white folk who live in predominantly white spaces, whether it's white cities, white suburbs, white towns like Bend, Oregon, we've given ourselves permission to look away. And we say things like this, and I've literally heard it dozens of times um, in the last couple of weeks. Well, we don't have that many black people here. So like, this isn't really, it's not really an issue here. 
or I, 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 li I live in, in San Francisco's East Bay. There's not a lot of black folk that live there. So I guess I don't, I don't really have a, a role to play. This isn't me. Or I live in X city or X suburb or X white space. So I, there's, not a, there's not a high population of black folks. So what does this have to do with us? Let me offer three very, very significant problems. And there's a ton, but let me highlight three problems with that sentiment. Are you ready? Number one, as followers of Jesus, the repetition of violence done to black and brown bodies by systems of oppression anywhere should undo us and unleash us to be a part of change. To willingly allow ourselves to become desensitized and indifferent to the plight of these image bearers because they quote, don't live here is not only dangerous, it is inaccurate. Reference our brother Deshaun Adderley who experienced the trauma of whiteness by our white sons and daughters. Or this week, I heard a local police officer boast that only 1% of interactions with police escalate into the use of force. That's the second time in as many days I've heard that data point, which helps me understand that's a talking point. What whiteness causes this cop to disregard are the dozens and dozens of altercations where our black and brown sisters hear are pulled over for driving while black, walking while brown, talking while black, shopping while brown. The documented racial profiling by law enforcement in our city is an act of violence. It is a use of excessive force and it terrorizes our sisters and brothers of color and leaves them traumatized. Now, a quick point of teaching here. Our contemporary police force has its roots in the slave patrol that was designed to do three things. Number one, chase down runaway slaves. Number two, organize terror so that the enslaved would not leave. Number three, use excessive force to gain compliance. What we see and don't see happening in our streets and in the streets around, the, around our country by law enforcement is a system doing exactly what it was designed to do. And while we're shocked by the lynching of George Floyd, that is exactly what law enforcement was originally designed to do. Now I'm imagining this is making some of us hot and bothered. I know that we've got some cops listening in and you, my friends, are beloved and we cherish you and you are a part of a system that was designed to oppress people of color. But lest I release myself from that, that same uh, accusation, I and Pete are a part of a system in white Christianity that was designed to maintain the oppression of our black and brown sisters and brothers in our country. We are a part, we are complicit in systems that have been designed by whiteness to benefit us at the expense of our sisters and brothers of color. Both of these, law enforcement and clergy, white Christianity, are obscene oppressive systems that have got to change. Mm. Second problem with this, we don't have black folk here and therefore it's not our issue. We're suggesting that if more black people lived here, we'd have more violence. Now let me ask us a really important question. When you think about an increase of violence due to an increase in black lives in cities like Bend or your white suburbs, what is the violence that comes to your mind? Is it the violence by whiteness enacted upon black bodies as seen on May 25th? 
Or is it black violence that's been dramatized through mass media that has dehumanized our black sisters and brothers as excessively violent folk for over 400 years? Mm. What is the violence in your imagination that comes to mind when you think about more black bodies living in your neighborhood? Are you arguing that if we had more black bodies in Bend, then there would be more violence enacted upon them? and therefore we would have to respond? Or are you suggesting that if there were more black lives in Bend, we would have an uptick in violence because of them and we'd be forced to respond to alleviate the violence? The former is about solidarity, compassion, mercy, and justice. It reveals our interdependence. The latter is about self-preservation mm. and self-interest. It exposes our whiteness. Pay attention to your imagination and what comes to mind. Mm. The third problem with we don't have black folk here, so we don't, it's not an issue. We are literally suggesting that the violence being done to our black and brown brothers and sisters is a black issue. And, we, and so like we, we watch and, and I'm so grateful Pete for just even your confessional moment of what happened when you saw our black brother walking in your neighborhood. We, we watch Ahmaud Arbery jog and we hear ourselves literally say, well, he shouldn't have been jogging in that neighborhood. He shouldn't have walked into that construction site. He should have stopped when a white truck with two white dudes with guns told him to. Are you kidding me? These are the things that we say though, right? We, we watch George Floyd being lynched under the knee of police and we say, well, maybe you shouldn't have spent that counterfeit $20. Maybe you shouldn't have resisted arrest. Here's the reality. What happened to those beloved image bearers and what is happening to our black and brown sisters and brothers around the country is not a black issue. To Pete's point, it is of the fruit of whiteness. It is a white issue. And living in a city that is 90% white in a state that has forever been an experiment in white supremacy, reference Kip's video and Pete's article, uh, I would say that we are fluent in whiteness here. We are swimming in the problem because the problem resides with us. Now, let's define some terms because you've heard Pete and I use terms like race and racism and whiteness. And so get your pen ready because the, if we're going to have an honest conversation that actually leads to change, we have to start actually using the same language. The definitions that I'm about to offer you came in a conversation I had on a global immersion webinar with Andre Henry, where he, he in paragraphs described these three realities in vivid detail, and then we worked together to actually shape definitions. And so here's race. Race is an unnatural hierarchy of humanity designed by powerful European men to accumulate and protect their interests. It's an unnatural hierarchy of humanity designed by powerful European men to accumulate and protect their interests. And you wanna know what our interests are? Abundance and safety. We will do whatever we have to do to accumulate and protect abundance and safety. Racism. Racism is weaponizing race in order to systemically oppress non-white image bearers. Weaponizing race in order to systemically oppress non-white image bearers. What we understood with the conception of race is that if we could codify it, if we could turn it into systems, we could, we could accumulate our abundance and maintain our safety, ultimately our power, by oppressing people who are not white. 
that's racism. What is whiteness? Whiteness is a socially constructed standard upon which every person is measured and deemed either normal, unusual, foreign, exotic, or not fully human. A socially constructed standard upon which every person is measured and deemed normal, unusual, foreign, exotic, or not fully human. With whiteness, ethnicity is optional, privilege is automatic, violence is inevitable and acceptable, ignorance is necessary. Whiteness, and when I'm talking about whiteness, I'm not talking about biology. We're not talking about the level of melanin in our skin. Whiteness is not biology, it is a technology. It is a system created by the powerful to make the accumulation of wealth and safety more efficient. Any system designed to make anything more efficient is a technology, and so whiteness is not white people. Whiteness is a system, an insidious, obscene, demonic system that is designed to benefit me at the expense of my brothers and sisters of color. I want to say it in a confessional way that whiteness has been ingrained into my body, into my mind, and into my eyes. Whiteness shapes the way I see myself, I see others, I understand the world that I navigate. Whiteness is one of the wedges that has propped open every single door of opportunity for me my entire life. Whiteness is the set of lenses through which I read and relate to other people. Not so long ago, whiteness is that thing that caused white families to pack picnic lunches to the go to church and then to watch a public lynching of a black live after church in the name of God. Whiteness is the disease that caused these two men to, to crawl into their truck and believe that they could police Ahmaud Arbery. Um, it's the thing that caused them to execute him on the street. Whiteness is the demon that you see in the eyes of Derek Chauvin as he kneeled on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Yet the violence of whiteness is not only located in those who enact physical violence upon black lives. The violence of whiteness is found in my ignorance, my indifference, my apathy, my silence, and my prolonged paralysis. The problem is not a black issue. The problem is whiteness. It is a deadly pathogen, more deadly than COVID-19. It is an oppressive, dark, evil, demonic power that has occupied us and it must occupy us no more. Whiteness is what killed George Floyd. Whiteness is what justified our designation of black lives as property in 1619. Whiteness is what justified the enslavement of black souls for 246 years. Whiteness is what constitute, um, constituted black lives as three-fifths human. Whiteness is what caused us to rename slavery in the 13th Amendment 12 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Whiteness took the form of conflict leasing, public lynchings, and domestic terrorism. It generated Jim and, uh, Jim and Jane Crow policies that denied civil rights to our brothers and sisters of color until 1968 and continues to do it. It's what took the lives of Martin Luther King Jr., Mark, uh, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, and Fred Hampton. Whiteness is what causes our country to fight senseless wars instead of promoting and protecting the dignity of non-white Americans. 
Whiteness is what fueled the war on drugs that was designed to target black and incarcerate black lives and pad the portfolios of white people. Whiteness is what inspires educational disparity, redlining, restricted housing covenants, voter suppression, and the public lynchings by law enforcement and white vigilantes today. Whiteness is why Emmett Till and Tamir Rice and Atatiana Jefferson and Breonna Taylor are dead. Now, while these are a few of the more insidious manifestations of whiteness throughout our history, let me remind us of what is the most lethal form of whiteness. In Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, he was not, he was not addressing the extremists. He was addressing those of us who have been radicalized by whiteness. He was addressing you and I, white Christians, who see but remain indifferent and paralyzed by the systemic oppression that extinguishes the lives of our black relatives for our personal gain. That, friends, according to Dr. King, is the most, most lethal, insidious form of whiteness. It's contagious, and it is killing all of us. Therefore, whiteness is not just a thing where, hey, let's read some books and talk a little bit more about it. Ignorance is not the thing that perpetuates whiteness. It is an oppressive force that needs to be fought differently. And we're going to talk about that just in a second. One of the ways that, that you can know that you're shackled by the oppressive power of whiteness is this. We claim to follow Jesus, and yet we remain indifferent and apathetic to what has been happening in plain view at least for the last 10 years. Friends, if you find yourself justifying or indifferent to the anti-black violence that's happening in our streets, that is in plain view. You do not have to look hard to see this. If you find yourself justifying and indifferent, you do not follow a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew named Jesus of Nazareth who subverted any and every system that did not dignify every image bearer of God. Instead, you admire a conveniently constructed white American Jesus who prioritizes your accumulation and preservation of affluence and safety. Friends, that Jesus is illegitimate and he is lethal. Mm. Are you with me? Mm. With you. Okay, just a little bit more. Mm. Let's look to the text now. I want to remind you, Antioch, of this. I remember this one moment I was teaching um, when we could all be in a room together. And uh, I brought up this quote by my Mohican friend, Jim Bear Jacobs, in, um, in Minneapolis. He's a pastor there. And uh, it was, this happened many years ago. He, he had the Bible in his hands and he said, Hey, Jared, do you want to know what this is? Uh, he said, this is, a man, this is the manual of the oppressed. This is, the, this is a manual written by occupied and oppressed people. And he said, what you have done and people like you have done is you have misunderstood your role. You believe and have done this for hundreds of years that your job is to take this manual of the oppressed and bring it to the oppressed peoples and say, let me tell you what this says. He says, you want to know what you should have been doing for the last 400 plus years? You should have been bringing this manual of the oppressed and the occupied to the oppressed and the occupied on your knees and asked us, begged us to help you understand what this says. 
I was on a Facebook live event with two of our nation's leading freedom fighters on, on Friday, Ben McBride out of Oakland and Linda Sarsour out of Brooklyn. You can find it on Global Immersion's Facebook page. Take an hour of your life and watch what was probably, probably one of the more important conversations I, I can remember in the last decade for sure. It's the conversation that needed to happen seven years ago for us white folk to begin to understand our role in the revolution. Here's what Ben said. He said, uh, folks, when you're reading the Bible, you have to remember you are not the Hebrew people. You are not the recipients, the exclusive recipients of God's special favor. See, when we read the Bible, we actually place ourselves as the protagonist. We actually understand ourselves as the Israelites. We understand ourselves as maybe the disciples or, 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 or the early church or, or whatever it is. Ben, ben reminds us that when you read the Bible, you have to understand that we are the Romans. We are the Pharisees. We are the Babylonians. We are the Assyrians. We are the Egyptians. Why? Because we are the contemporary empire. We are the most powerful country in the history of the world. And we who are white and claim to have some kind of knowledge of God and Jesus and claim to espouse some kind of form of Christianity, we actually have power. We are not an, an oppressed people group. So when, when we're reading the Bible, we're reading it wrong if we understand ourselves as the protagonist. While we are the beloved, we are the antagonists in the story of the scriptures, saved by grace and being transformed into instruments of peace. It's important for us to understand that the way that we've been groomed to read and understand the Bible and theology has been wrong. And so in the text, there's some things that we can look to I think, with regard to whiteness. The first one I think we'll find in Psalm chapter 139, uh, verse 23. So if you have your Bible, go to Psalm chapter 139, verse 23. Here's what the psalmist writes. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Every single week, I listen to a podcast by Kimberly Crenshaw. She's, um, she's a black scholar who coined the phrase intersectionality. Uh, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with that phrase, get yourself familiar to it. Uh, and the way that you can do that is you can listen to her podcast called Intersectionality Matters. Since the pandemic, she's been doing a series called Under the Black Light, in which she's exposing all of the insidious broken systems that existed before the pandemic that have become more severe because of the pandemic. It is an unbelievable use of your time. I urge you to do it. I want to borrow her phrase under the black light when I'm thinking about Psalm 139, 23, and 24. When you think about a black light, I don't know if you, if you were like a high schooler and you, you know, you had dance parties downstairs or whatever it was, and there were black lights, like the the, the, the tiniest speck of white lint on your shirt would become vivid. It would become exposed. We have to place our lives under the black light of the Spirit, friends. We have to actually invite the Spirit to, to expose all of the spaces inside of us where whiteness resides. It resides in my eyes. It resides in my ears. It resides in my mouth. It resides in my heart, in my soul. It resides in my hands. 
If we're going to actually be a part of remaking the world, we have to place our lives under the black light of the spirit, inviting her to expose the whiteness that is warping our souls and contributing to the extermination of black lives around the world. So friends, this is a moment of repentance. This is contemplative work, but it's not just contemplative work. Placing my life under the black light, yes, it's looked like some of my, my moments of stillness and, and silence, but it absolutely looks like being in community with other white folk who are further along in the journey than me, people who are, are fluent in whiteness and can begin to understand what it looks like and can hear when I say a thing. They're like, that's what whiteness sounds like, even though I'm well-intentioned. Being under the black light looks like being in relationships with brothers and sisters of color who, who dare to love me enough to say, that's you being white. You're taking up too much space. Sit in the back of the room and close your mouth. Or now we actually need you to speak up, but you're too, you, you know, you're, you're, you don't have enough courage in this moment. That's your whiteness, right? So it is a contemplative space and it is a communal space, placing our lives under the black light and inviting the spirit to, to expose the whiteness that's in us. Second um, moment in the scriptures that I want to point to is in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. So turn over to Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. I, I love this passage. This is the moment when Jesus is making his way into Jericho. And, and as he's making his way in with his entourage, there's a blind man named Bartimaeus who begins to scream out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I was in the, I, I've been marching a lot this week. And it's so fun and fun. Like, I, I love that we're getting emboldened to get in the streets. That matters a ton. It's happening all around the country. I'm also recognizing white folk don't know how to use our voices. Why do we not know how to use our voices? Because we don't understand the pain. If it was my son and daughter, my wife, my dad, my mom, my brothers and sisters who were being lynched on the streets uh, of our country, I would not be saying Black Lives Matter on protest. I'd be saying Black Lives Matter because it's like my, I have to use my voice. Like if I'm deaf, the volume of my voice indicates my desperation, right? And so as Jesus is moving into Jericho, there's a black man who's not saying Jesus, son of David, like a white guy in the protest. He's, he's saying Jesus, son of David, have mercy because the bro is blind and he's been blind forever and he wants to see and he has this sense that Jesus is in his midst. And he has this idea that Jesus is the only one that can actually transform non-seeing eyes to eyes that can see. So he screams because he's desperate. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Again, pay attention to the fact that the blind dude is the only one who is clear on who Jesus was. And people are trying to like shut him up. Like, come on, come on. Jesus, like Jesus can't be bothered by the marginalized. Jesus can't be bothered by your affliction. But pay attention. Jesus hears the cries and Jesus draws near. That's what happens repeatedly in the scripture. Jesus hears the cries of the oppressed, the afflicted, the vulnerable, and Jesus always draws near. We like to think that Jesus positions himself with us as though Jesus prioritizes our power, our abundance, and our safety. Jesus, it's actually antichrist. Matthew 25, Jesus says, do you want to be found by me? Find me among the impacted, for that is where I reside, right? So this is no surprise that Jesus makes his way to blind Bartimaeus. But pay attention to this. In the passage, when he draws near, Jesus looks at Bartimaeus, a, a physically blind man. I don't know how many interactions you've had with physically blind people, but you can tell. You can tell when they're blind, right? He comes up to the physically blind guy, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? 
What an obvious, like, that's an obvious question. But he asks him, no, 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 like, I want you to identify, Bartimaeus. What's the thing that you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus' answer, if you look in the text, I want to see. Friends, we are in a moment in time when Jesus is in our midst. Jesus has been residing among the impacted for hundreds of years. I would argue more so the presence and the power of Jesus has been far more located among the impacted than in our white churches for the past 400 years. In this moment, for those of you who are beginning to draw near, you're beginning to draw near Jesus. Jesus is in your midst. My question to you is, are we going to be like blind Bartimaeus who acknowledges that we can't see? So here, friends, the fact that we can't see the reality of what's happening in our, in our streets does not mean that it's not happening. It means that we are blind. We have been groomed in a system that has poisoned our sight. And Jesus is in our midst in this moment. This is a thin space moment. Will we be like Bartimaeus who says, Jesus, I want to see. Pray the prayer and then we'll go to work. I'll tell you how in just a couple minutes. The third passage, third and final passage I want to look at, um, still in in Mark chapter 5. Or in Mark chapter 5. It's the moment when, uh, when Jesus crosses the sea uh, to, to the 10 cities, to the Gerasenes. And, um, and there's, there he's encountered by a, a, a man who is oppressed by a demon. And I want you to pay attention in this passage as you read it. Like, pay attention to the damage that the demon is doing to the person. Yes, there's damage. There's, everyone's ca- caught in the collateral of this, of this demon-possessed man, but the, the demon is literally oppressing, afflicting, killing the man, right? Jesus comes up, and this demon-possessed man throws himself at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus understands, ah, this is a powerful, angry demon. This is an oppressive, evil, dark power that is oppressing this man. Just like I hear my sisters and brothers of color refer to whiteness and white supremacy, not as an ideology, but as a demon. It is a demon that has occupied us and rendered us indifferent to the pain of those who are suffering in our streets. That's what's going on in this passage. This young man is oppressed by a demon like you and I are oppressed by a demon of whiteness. And Jesus does this thing. Jesus asks the demon to identify itself. And in the passage, the demon speaks up and says, I am legion. That means I am many. I am powerful. But what happens is that when the demon begins to identify itself, it begins to lose its power. So the same Jesus who was and continues to be in the business of sight healing continues to be in the business of exorcism, releasing us from the shackles of the demon of whiteness that is an old, angry beast that literally in this moment is, is trying to convince you to look away. That is literally trying to say, you know what, in, in five weeks, all of this will go away and we can get back to business as usual. This is not going away. Because the demon of whiteness is gaining power. It gains power with our indifference. And so in order for the demon of whiteness to be exercised, we have to name it as such. You will not read yourself out of, out of whiteness. 
Jesus will accompany you out of whiteness. That is the only way forward. And now I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I think we need to do to participate in, in that. Oh, hey, one more thought. One more thought on, on whiteness as demon. Like for some of us, that's like, ooh, that, we're getting like existential and crazy and, and, and all the things. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6. We fight not against blood and bones. We fight against the powers and the principalities, the demons that render us lethal, agents of a lethal system. So the, the, the demon of whiteness sounds like the justifications I hear white people give to what's happening to George Floyd and others. It defies logic. It defies reason. It, the, the, the demon of whiteness shows up in, in, in overly cautious elders of white churches being like, hey, hey, you know, like, pedal this carefully because we don't want to lose membership. People, people are losing their lives, right? Like the demon of whiteness sounds like all of these things. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're not fighting against human beings. We're not fighting against white people. We're fighting against an insidious demonic system called whiteness and we fight it with the spiritual armor that we've been given so gird up brothers and sisters gird up because it is time to fight now last word what do we do (laughs) it's a good question it's a well-intentioned question it's a necessary question and it's a revealing question let me hit that last one first the question what do we do actually reveals that we live so far removed from the terror being inflicted upon our black and brown brothers and sisters that we have no idea what to do. I want you to imagine for a moment that what is happening to our sisters and brothers of color are happening to you, to your kids, my kids, my partner, my parents. And then ask the question, what would I do? Would we host another book study? Would we ask our pastor to say it a little bit calmer? Would we, would we engage in prolonged moments of, uh, of, of lament? Or would we interrogate the system, figure out how to build alliances to actually dismantle it because lives are at stake. So yes, we need to do our homework. That's a part of what we do, absolutely. But if this was happening to you, reading a book would be unacceptable. It's not enough. There's more to do. And so here's, here's three, uh, three ideas for us. Number one, we need to understand, interrogate, lament, and repent of whiteness. That's homework. We've got a lot of work to do here. Are a couple of ways that you can do that. Let me offer some books. Waking Up White, White Awake by Daniel Hill, White Privilege by Robin D'Angelo. You have white folk reflecting on whiteness, which is really important for us to wrap our, our, our minds around. I would also urge you to read The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby to understand how white Christianity is not just kind of like a side player. We are central to the insidious work that's been happening in our country over the last 400 years. I would urge you to read So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Aluo. Understand the system of whiteness and how it has strangled uh, our black and brown sisters and brothers for 400 plus years, okay? 
But I also want to urge you to follow my sister, Oshita Moore, in Minneapolis. She's currently in the process of, of writing a book called Dear White Peacemakers. She was just in a webinar that you'll get access to here in, in a follow-up email out of this. Um, she is speaking as a black woman directly to aspiring white allies, and she's doing it with a lot more grace than I'm doing it in, in this particular moment. Follow her because she is speaking up and she's saying, contact me, let's talk. And then I would say, when, when you get in contact with people like Oshita Moore, pay her for her time. Do not cause her to have to spend all of her time doing the thing and then figure out how else to eke out an existence. Pay her for her coaching. That's some of the, what, what we need to do to interrogate and repent of whiteness. Follow, and, and follow along with Global Immersion. For the last decade, this is the work that we've been doing, accompanying predominantly white folk as we take a journey to become everyday peacemakers who are actually linked up with our brothers and sisters of colleague and following them and their lead into the revolution. So understand, interrogate, lament, and repent of whiteness. This is the space where the exorcism happens. Number two, get proximate to sisters and brothers of color. Oh, we live in Bend, or I live in a suburb, and I don't know if there are the, yeah, they're there. Mm -hmm. They live there. And they are hard at work. And they have been hard at work for years. We just haven't had the eyes to see it. They're there. Build relationships at their pace. Build trust at their pace. Gain their perspective by listening longer than feels comfortable. That means that we don't like suddenly show up and take them out to coffee and say, hey, what's it like being, being black in, in, in X city? No, you're inviting them to re-traumatize themselves. Go to the rooms that they are already inhabiting, creating and commenting on culture and the revolution. Sit in the back and listen. In Bend, for the last five years, my primary friends and colleagues are Latinas, and all I've done is found out wherever it is that they're talking, and I go and I sit in the back of the room and I listen. Now here's what happens. Over time, when we build relationship at their pace, build trust, at their pace, gain their perspectives. Over time, they will begin to commission us as white allies and fellow freedom fighters to begin to actually leverage our privilege as white folk to start changing broken systems. They see that we have a role to play. And it changes the game when we actually aren't gonna go you know, speak truth to power, but when we're commissioned by our sisters and brothers of color to follow Jesus to power and actually speak truth to it, right? Find yourself in the kinds of relationships where ultimately you become commissioned to join them in the, in the revolution. Third, we have to leverage and we have to build and leverage our shared power. As we begin to actually build out what Dr. King would call the beloved community. That is not a white-led thing. That is not a black-led thing. That is a, a community of equity where we are taking our cues from one another and co-creating the better world together, right? So leverage we have to build and leverage our shared power. For those of us who live in, in the, the context of families and work systems, part of that actually looks like you holding your, your family and friends accountable. You can't just let them spout off and be white all over the place. It's a contagion. It's a pathogen, and it is lethal. It means that we have to speak up. We have to dare to become unpopular and lose some repu reputation for the sake of the movement, for the sake of restoration in our, in our country. We need to hold leaders accountable. I, I think the, the, the PR moments by our local police departments have been really charming, both in Bend and in Redmond. But what they're asking, what they're asking you to do, white brothers and sisters, is to calm down. We don't, we, our black brothers and sisters cannot afford for, they can't afford for us to calm down. 
They can't afford for us to, to take this long learning journey. What they need to see and what our world needs to see is a growing number of white sisters and brothers who are willing to learn what it means to absorb violence, the violence that has been directed at our black brothers and sisters, because the United States will not tolerate that. And by the way, is not self-sacrifice the invitation that has been offered to us by Jesus? Mm. Is that not the way mm. of Jesus? Mm. Last thing I'm going to say around leveraging power, we vote not on behalf of our own interests. And I know that this is crazy for white folk who live in conservative white spaces. In this moment in time, we do not vote for our own self-interest, but on the interests of those who are occupied and oppressed. We have been voting our self-interest and it has padded our income and it has crushed them. It is time that we begin to listen to them and take our cues from them with regard to how we actually vote as citizens of this country. That's all I got to say for now. And it was a lot. I'm excited about Tuesday where we can go back and forth a bit more on this. Jer, thank you for that gentle pastoral reminder. <laughs> as church leaders, there's times to be pastoral and there's times to be prophetic. Yeah, right. And I appreciate you bringing a prophetic word to our congregation in the time that calls for it. Um, you're an Enneagram 8. I'm an Enneagram 9. So just a couple questions as we close. Um, do you hate white people? Not at all. I'm right. fighting yes or for no, us. Yes or no answer is fine. <laughs> do you hate America? Not at all. Uh, do you hate cops? I'm not at all. Love them. Is it a sin to have white skin? Absolutely not. Okay. So, all right. We'll have to replay that like 18 times. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so good. Uh, I told you guys at the beginning of this conversation that there would be uh, moments where you're pretty uncomfortable. I told you that you would get a racing heart or a spinning mind, um, a clenching gut. Um, that happened, didn't it? I know it did for me. And that's okay. That's okay. Um, there are times where we come together in a worship space or a digital liturgy space and we need to seek peace and comfort from the spirit. And there's other times um, where we need, we need to get our butts kicked a little bit. And uh, this is one of those times. And so, like Jer said, we, uh, we know this is a lot and you probably have a ton of questions. Um, some of you are fired up and ready to go hit the streets. Uh, there's another protest today mm -hmm. in Bend. Yep. Yeah, Drake Park at noon. Um, others of you are really mad, really angry that uh, we would even have this conversation um, at all. And what I wanna say is we have uh, a next step for you and a way for you to voice some of those questions and concerns um, through the chat feature or you can email uh, info at Antioch Church after uh, this call is over. And Tuesday night, seven o'clock, we will uh, be back at it in um, a chance to dialogue a little bit more and uh, respond to some of those questions and have a conversation. And so, um, again, in the midst of a moment where um, it would be much easier and much more comfortable just to kind of do church as we're used to it, um, the words from the prophet Amos come to mind. And specifically Amos chapter 5, where God has a prophetic word for his people who are rather than learning to see and lament and engage the injustices around them are more comfortable just kind of going to church, so to speak. 
And so listen to the words uh, in Amos 5 in Eugene Peterson's version of the message. God says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. We're going to close our time with a song of lament. One of our worship leaders, Carrie Gillette, is going to be sharing this song. And we invite you to enter in um, to this as a prayer, as a lament, and as an invitation to God's Spirit to search our hearts and to show us where we are yet to be conformed to his way of seeing ourselves, seeing our brothers and sisters and neighbors. So thanks for joining us today. Carrie, go ahead. You say you're near to the broken. You say your peace passes understanding. You say your hope for the hurting. Where are you now? So come close. I'm on the verge of breaking, come close. I'm desperate for your presence, come close. The weight of pain is crushing, come close. She touched your hem and you healed her. You opened eyes with the dirt we walk on. When will I wake from this nightmare? Where are you now? Where are you now? So come close. I'm on the verge of breaking. Come close. I'm desperate for your presence. Come close. The weight of pain is crushing, come close. And you are good, you are good. I 
You are good. You are good. I still believe you are good. Show us your goodness, Lord. Show us your justice, Lord. Lord, we are hurting. We need your healing. We need your forgiveness, Lord. So come close. I'm on the verge of breaking. Come close. I'm desperate for your presence. Come close. Come close. Oh, you're not scared of my questions. Where are 